Welcome to Crop Watch Podcast, a production of Nebraska Extension. Well, welcome to another edition of Fridays with the Scientists. Today we have Alyssa Hall, PhD student from the Department of Agronomy. Alyssa, how are you this morning? Great, how are you? Good, a little chilly this morning. Um, I think we're supposed to get to maybe close to 10 above. That'll be an improvement. Heat wave. And the sun's out. That's also an improvement. Um, so uh, where are you from? What's your story? How did you end up here? Yep. So I'm a PhD student in the agronomy department, and I'm originally from north central Indiana. I did my bachelor's at Purdue University in agronomy, and I had an interest in extension. And so I started looking into going to grad school, at which point I had an internship opportunity out here at UNL where I worked with Darren Redfern for a summer. Um, I had no previous research experience, so he gave me some of that research experience, told me what grad school was about. And then after I graduated, I ended up coming out here to work with him on my master's. And he gave me the opportunity to stay with him for a PhD. So I'm still here working in integrated crop and livestock systems on my PhD. So what, what type of research did you do when you were an undergraduate? When I was out here, we are actually working on switchgrass, so using it as a um, biofuel. Um, so we had the whole summer to learn about data collection and all the way to presenting our research about some different cultivars of switchgrass based on yield for the best biofuel production there. What part of the state was that in? It was over here in the eastern part of Nebraska. Okay. You remember what year that was? That was 2018. Oh, so we didn't scare you off? Nope. <laughs> and decided to come back. It was a really great opportunity. Um, I looked at a couple other institutions, but for the type of research I was interested in, in that farmer-focused research that was very applicable to the producers of the area and had that extension backing, um, coming here to UNL was my best opportunity for that. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, so what you probably finished your bachelor's at Purdue what year? 2019. 2019. So you would have started out here like right kind of during the pandemic. Yep. So I started in July of 2019 and then the pandemic came in March of 2020. So, and I, I've asked other faculty this and a few other graduate students this, like their experience of being in an academic institution and dealing with, you know, the life that was during COVID in 2020. Um, what challenges did you face during that time? I mean, other than the, some of the obvious challenges. Right. Yep. I think as a grad student, it was hard for everybody, but as a new grad student, it was particularly challenging because I'd only been here for a semester. So we were, me and the group that I came in with, we were still trying to figure our way out around campus, trying to meet the professors that were in our discipline, um, get our classes underway. And so to go from being on campus and floundering our way through that to having to work remotely off of campus, it took away a lot of that like interactive, collaborative environment that happens in research. Um, and so that was difficult to work through. I think it made us all good at being the independent workers so that we were getting our stuff done. Um, but the probably now the biggest challenge is figuring out how to be collaborative again, um, I think is what I have noticed anyways within the grad students and the faculty that we're working with is we got used to those two years of not talking to each other, not seeing each other. And now we have to learn how to do that all again and be efficient and productive while we're doing that. Yeah, no, it's there's definitely been a bit of a change. I, mean, I feel like things are kind of back to normal now, but it's also it's very easy for some people to say, well, I just want to talk on Zoom or we'll just talk on the phone. And I those in-person interactions, I think, are very valuable. Yes. And so were you 
Were you TAing a class or anything during that time period? I was, yep. I was helping with uh, soil nutrient relationships. It's a junior and senior level class in the agronomy department. And so we moved to completely online with that. The um, spring of 2020. The spring of 2020. So we were actually in person at the beginning of the spring right. of 2020. Um, and then we moved to online where we shifted onto Zoom and as well as some other online interactive type discussion board things. But we stayed very face-to-face with that class, which was really good um, for that setting because they come into a lab and they learn how to do all the different fertilizer math and they have to do a presentation at the end where they've created a nutrient management plan um, for a farm that they are familiar with. And so there's a lot of face-to-face interaction in that class. So we did our best to keep up with that through different video outlets and that type of thing, which was challenging because after just having to show up in the classroom to talk to everybody, then you have to pivot to being able to use your computer for everything and making sure you're still being intentional about the time that you see them. Oh, absolutely. Do you feel like some students um, were able to adapt to that a lot more easily than others? I think definitely. um, Because in the past, online classes are typically much more hands-off. Like the professor isn't there sitting with you, teaching you all the time. It's video-based or online assignment based. And so having to learn how to take your past notions of what an online class is and make it into a very interactive where you are participating all the time um, is a little bit of a mindset shift for a lot of students. And so that was definitely something. Sure. To work and then, you know, if they're dealing with other anxieties, worrying about COVID or there was something in their families, is, you know, it's just, there's all sorts of things that were going on. Mm-hmm. So I think the, the level of participation probably varied very widely. Yep. And I think like everybody we all got some screen burnout. So if all of your classes are on Zoom or all of your meetings are on Zoom, that's that's a lot of looking at your computer. Sure. I I still do to the point. And, you know, part of that was because, you know, for us, you know, I worked for a company based in Massachusetts for a long time. So when we went, I was already kind of technically remote anyway, but I was working in person, well, hot desk innovation campus. So I still got to go leave the house and got to see people every day. And then, you know, we were basically told in March of 2020 to, you know, go home and work from there until further notice, which was, you know, quite a while. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I felt like, so, I mean, the aspect of having, you know, Teams meetings or Zoom meetings or whatever was not necessarily new. Uh, that just became the kind of the standard. And I got to say, like, once we started kind of having more in-person stuff again, I, that's one of the reasons I actually wanted to come into extensions. It's like, I just wanted to actually work with people in person. And I still find myself sometimes on teams meetings. Like if it's a larger group meeting, that's easy to zone out and start working on other things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's just like, I would greatly prefer to just chat with people in person. Yeah, um, I think that's one of the things that uh, we realized that we really miss with those, 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 interactions with people are important. Absolutely. It's been great being back, especially in that grad student community, getting to actually meet the new grad students. And we have lunch meetings now where we all get together and can talk to each other and be friends and not just have to do our classes online all the time. Right. And those social interactions are, you know, it's it's nice to have that support group Mm -hmm. in grad school. A lot of people won't make it through grad school without having some support group because everybody needs boost at times. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also if you are constantly online and you don't get to go out and go to meetings, get to meet people, it's like you don't get to meet people that sometimes help get you the next job. Your network. Absolutely. Yeah, the networking is incredibly important. Yep. And, you know, I think uh, 
I know I've gotten where I am just because to a certain point, because, you know, I know people mm-hmm. and I, I wouldn't have had that had I, everything just been online. Right. So, That's how I got to grad school because I met Darren. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, Darren was one of the people that was on my uh, search committee. Um, I think I had met him quite a few years earlier at a, I'm trying to think of what might be like a water for food conference or something. <laughs> and I immediately was like, you're not from around here, are you? And he's <laughs> like, no. And I remember he told me something about like Rogers Mills County, Oklahoma was like the worst piece of land God ever made. It's like, well, I, I told him that because I had lived in Oklahoma prior to moving back up here for undergrad. And it's like, well, I never went to that one county in the state, <laughs> but I could probably take your word for it. <laughs> um, so what, what do you think your favorite thing is about the grounding department here? I think after all this talk about COVID, I think my favorite thing about the agronomy department is the collaborative nature that they have where people are working together. We're doing like front of the line research that's very producer focused. Um, We're taking producer questions and turning them into research projects to answer those questions with science. Um, A lot of it is working towards sustainability. Um, We're integrating crop and livestock together and all those different uh, disciplines within the agronomy department are working together to do that. Weed scientists are working with the agronomists, the agronomists are working with the animal scientists. Um, And so I just really like the idea that we're all on a team. We're trying to make this world of agriculture better. And so that is one of my favorite parts about the agronomy department. Yeah. I meant to ask you earlier, did you grow up on a farm or what was like, did you have a farming or agriculture background when you were a kid? Yes. Um, all of my grandpas and uncles farmed. And then my family um, with my dad, we raised cattle. And so I had a little bit bits and pieces of the whole picture of the crop and livestock side of things growing up. More of like ranching? No. Feedlot? Very small, very small, um, small cow-calf operation. So okay, grazing livestock. Um, and we fed out some steers in that calf side of the operation, but it was much more the cow-calf production. Sure. And I imagine those cow-calf Cow calf operations in Indiana are probably inherently smaller than they are over here just because there's a lot more people in Indiana than there are in Nebraska. Yep, there's more people in Indiana. And also, we have a lot, the percentage of rangeland cropland, we have a lot more cropland than we do in Nebraska. Like, we don't have the whole Sand Hills region. Oh, sure. We have that rangeland out there. And so, we are growing a lot. It's more dense in corn than it is in livestock. So, sure. Yeah, I don't know. So what, what part? You're from north central Indiana. Mm-hmm. So it's like um, north of Indianapolis, yes. west of Fort Wayne. Yep, I, that's exactly where I am. I can't say I don't think I've ever been through there. Okay. I've been through I-80 in the northern part of Indiana. Mm-hmm. And I've been through so 64 uh, to Evansville and into Kentucky. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I haven't spent much time in the state of Indiana. So I'm assuming it's a little bit different than here. A little bit. Um, we... We compare the weather. We're about the same. We just get it in Nebraska about three days earlier than we do at home. Um, and or extremes here. Yes. Yeah. It's colder and hotter. Mm-hmm, a little bit. And then in terms of in Lincoln and East Nebraska, it's fairly similar. You know, yep. corn and soybeans, a lot of crop ground. Mostly um, rain fed. Yep. Mostly rain fed. Then once you get out of Lincoln and you move west into Nebraska, then it gets very different. We don't have very many pivot irrigators in Indiana, but you can't hardly find a field without them in western Nebraska. So you, you kind of almost have to have yep. irrigation once you get like west of Hunter's Meridian. I mean, really mm-hmm. last year you needed it uh, everywhere. Everywhere. I mean, it would have been nice if we'd had it every, you know, even in southeast Nebraska last summer. Uh, although they actually did 
they're better last year than 2022 since it was they had just enough moisture to start out last year and then it started raining and so if you're going to combine like the spring of 22 and the summer of 23 would have been an ideal growing season to a point mm-hmm. other than that one stretch of heat last august but yeah last year was the driest spring i could ever remember this part of the country like it was um i mean there was a i think up until june our wettest month here to that point of in January mm-hmm. and January is not a wet month here. And so it's not good if your wettest month six months into the year was January. Right. <laughs> um, so were you involved in FFA when you were in high school? I was yep, very involved in our local chapter. Um, I did soil judging, which is what led me to, to do pursuing a degree in agronomy as well as dairy judging in that. And you seem to have a very, a big focus on sustainability in your, in your research and your, you know, your interests. Yep. So do you, do you think that started with uh, the soil uh, judging? I think soil judging got me into the field of agronomy to begin with. Um, I didn't, I didn't know until I started soil judging in high school that you could go to school and study what was below your feet. Um, and so that, it opened up that whole world of possibilities there and getting to interact with some of those NRCS agents and different extension outlets through that, as well as people from Purdue at that point in time, definitely um, did open up that world of conservation and sustainability. Um, but I I think my interest really blossomed once I got into college with that. Um, the more the more you know, the more interested you could be. And so once sure. I started learning all of those things, that's yeah. where I came from. I brought Dr. Carol Cordova on this podcast back in September. And mm-hmm. she, most of the focus is on soil health. And, um, you know, from my perspective as a climatologist, I think soil health is incredibly important because like mm-hmm. we can maintain more water from increasingly volatile precipitation events and store more of it. I think that really actually gives us, a, you know, at least particularly in the Western Corn Belt where our precipitation is inherently a little bit more variable and a little bit mm-hmm. less than it is further east. If we to store more soil water, that's gives you that extra week of state of execution. Yep. Uh, sometimes that's just all you really need for, you know, a really good crop is just that little extra soil moisture gets you through that next rain. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there are years like 2022 where it just stops raining in July. And that's, just, you, know, it's, you sort of can't do much about that unless you irrigate. Um, but there are years like, um, I'm trying to think of a good year where you maybe we went three or four weeks out getting much precipitation and started raining again. It's like, if you can maintain a decent water balance through the portion of that, your crop will stay a lot healthier. Right. Um, yeah, I, I, the successful farmer series in December, where I gave a talk, I was listening to, uh, some local producers that had really focused on, uh, cover cropping and integration with livestock and like, you know, talk about how much organic matter they've been able to build up over the last 20 years. And, uh, I think Aaron Studebaker said that, they've added a point of organic matter in the last 20 years is with cover crops. Mm-hmm. And he said that I not, not this last year, but I think they've had years, they've had 270 bushel corn on rainfall, which is phenomenal. Yeah. In the Northeast Lancaster County. Um, and they've had really, really high soybean yields. And I think this last year, I mean, their yields were, were certainly down because of the conditions, but I mean, they actually had a, a what you would probably classify as a respectable crop, uh, as opposed to some of their neighbors that struggled to, you know, break 70, 80 bushels an acre just because of how severe the, you know, drought was early in the right. season. So I, I, if there's one thing that, you know, farmers ask, well, oh, okay, what, what's the magic bullet? It's like, well, there probably isn't one, but it's like, if you really, really take care of your soils, I think that, mm-hmm. like that to me, I don't know if it's low hanging fruit, but that almost seems like something that's more manageable, more tangible right. to do. 
Um, but I, I, you know, when it comes to sustainable agriculture, you know, being not being an agronomist, I, I'm always kind of curious, like how agronomists or different agronomists define that term. Like, do you have a specific definition in mind when you when you you hear the word sustainable agriculture or hear that term? Mm-hmm. I think in terms of sustainable agriculture, like sustainability, it's a word that we use in a lot of different aspects of our lives and it's using the resources we have. And um, so sustaining what you have, working with what you have and using those resources that are renewable and not using up all of our non-renewable resources. So like in this life that we have, soil is a non-renewable resource. It produces so slowly in our lifetime that we can't renew it. So sustaining that, by using all of these different practices that we're talking about, cover crops, livestock integration, um, so that we can keep the soil we have and keep it healthy, building that soil health. I think um, renewable resources and using what we have is how I would define sustainable agriculture, um, which then leads into all those practices that you were talking about to build up our water, have more organic matter, those types of things. Yeah, another term I've heard more in the last few years is regenerative agriculture and i gotta be honest i i can't quite wrap my brain around exactly what that means mm-hmm. uh can you collaborate on that a little bit yep so for me and i know there are different usda definitions different scientists definitions while sustainable agriculture is using what we have um without the goal of using it up regenerative agriculture is making what we have better so that would be the improving your organic matter, improving the soil structure, having more microbial biomass in your soil. Um, So using those practices that are regenerating, making what we have, the resources we have already, improving them is how I view regenerative agriculture. Okay, so it's almost like the old BASF commercials where you don't make the product you have, we just make the product you have better. So Mm -hmm. making what you have better and and it's, I think that regenerative agriculture is all encompassing. So it's making your soil better, making the environment better, improving the health and wellness of your livestock, making your community as a whole better. Like it's the full body picture of agriculture and that improvement, not just we want more yield. Sure. And where, where do you think we are in that right now? Like, is it generally speaking, at least maybe just focusing on like this part of the Corn Belt, like Eastern Nebraska, Western Iowa? I think we're working on it. Um, There's a lot of research being done, a lot of companies that are popping up with types of practices that they're implementing that fall into that regenerative category. Um, I think there's a lot of work to be done. It's a very big mindset shift that we've had since the industrial revolution um, to come back to this kind of like diversified improvement mindset instead of um, just production, production, production. So I think we're working on it. Yeah. It's, and there's a lot of positive steps being taken. Yeah. For that. So do you think to a certain extent it's almost kind of coming full circle where we were say prior to the, certainly the 1970s, maybe even the 1960s when there was a still this huge push for just more and more production. Uh, you know, my parents grew up on farms and they had livestock, they had mm-hmm. cattle, they had pigs, they had some chickens. Um, you know, some of that was to a certain point, like they, you know, they, they had to go to the store to buy a lot of food, but they had a little bit of self-sufficiency in mm-hmm. terms of what they could have on the, on the farm. And I find it, uh, at least in certain parts of the Midwest, and probably this is, you know, nationwide, that you're now mostly either a grain producer or you're a livestock. There aren't many people that do both anymore. Right. And I'm sure some of that is 
economics. Some of that's just practical. I mean, I know on my mom's side of the family, my uncle got rid of the cattle after the last of the boys were gone, weren't around to actually help with the chores. This is cattle mm-hmm. were a lot of work. Um, but it seems to me there are a lot of tangible ecological and economic benefits to having a livestock integration. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder if you could elaborate on that a little bit more. Um, yep. So with that, the agronomic side of things, when you integrate your livestock and your crops back together, one of the most tangible benefits is that manure addition that you have from including livestock in your system. So whether that's applying manure from a feedlot situation or grazing your residues or a cover crop um, with that direct manure application on the field, I think that helps us offset some of our conventional fertilizer use, as well as um, some of those soil benefits of improving your organic matter, building your microbial communities, improving soil structure because your organic matter is building. Um, So there's a lot of And then even in the long term there, if you are grazing your residues, those cattle are removing some of that residue. So then there's less of a need for tillage before planting because you have a little bit more of an open seed bed. All of those different types of agronomic benefits that come from integrating those back together. Um, You ask economically, was that one of your other questions? Sure, yeah. Um, Economically, there's... And I'm coming from a grain production and more of a cattle production. This would apply to other, we don't have a lot of sheep in this area, but it could be sheep or any sort of other grazing animal specifically. But if you're a farmer who only does grain production, um, there's a lot of opportunity for winter grazing your residues by renting your ground out. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that there's been other podcasts and lots of crop watch articles written about that, but you have that economic incentive to rent your ground to a Um, cattle producer or other livestock producer for grazing as well as for that livestock producer he doesn't have to buy all that hay feed that hay have that labor over winter because his livestock are out grazing on some sort of residue corn residue cover crop residue whatever that is so there's some give and take there where I think in terms of that regenerative agriculture we're also bringing that whole farming community back into conversation there Mm -hmm. Um, and keeping with those small farms that you were talking about that your family grew up on, keeping those nutrients within um, a small loop instead of having conventional fertilizer, reusing our neighbor's fertilizer, like all of that is coming back into full circle there. Yeah, no, that, that I think what you said about the community, I think that's very important. I think it's you know crucial that, you know, our rural areas that we maintain those connections. Just, mm-hmm. you know, a lot, I mean, I think, I forget what the exact number is, but most counties in the state are, are losing people or not really gaining people. Yep. And, you know, I think there is going to come a tipping point where it's like, you have, you know, you have to have a certain number of people to actually be able to sustain, you know, some of these smaller towns that people kind of congregate to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it's unfortunate we've seen what you call the brain drain of this part of the country the last 40, 50 years. And I'm hoping if we can get more adoption of regenerative agriculture practices that, you know, maybe we can at least maintain what we have and hopefully kind of start, you know, offsetting that or reversing that trend a little bit. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, personally, I think extension has a significant role to play in this. And I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts were and how extension uh, can better serve people in terms of, you know, the shifting of a mindset to a regenerative agriculture mindset. Mm-hmm. I think extension plays a huge role. Um, I My original interest in extension was how to best communicate to farmers, producers, um, that audience in general, with all of these new ag practices that are coming out. And I think that 
some people out for, I don't know, lack of a better idea, they're afraid of science because they don't understand. Numbers are, numbers can be scary and statistics and all of those different phrases that we throw around. But extension can come in and they can take that science and present it in a way that the anybody else can understand. And they make it very applicable. And I think that being able to take these practices that we know about and that we're researching, we need those people in extension to be getting the word out. Hey, look, the university is trying this, or we know this other organization that is trying this thing. Here's how it's working for them. We think it could work for you. And just being that liaison, that bridge between the data world and the actual application. Um, and also, I think, especially here in Nebraska, there's such a great on-farm research network that is bridging that gap in an even different way where they're like, let's do the science on your field so you can see what's happening and not not just me telling you that it's going to work. You're actually seeing that it's going to work with our help behind you. So you don't have to be scared because you have this whole support system that's helping you get through it. Right. Exactly. Again, it comes down to that community, you know, larger statewide network is mm-hmm. very important that, yeah, I, I think it's, it's different than you actually are working side by side, working in sort of a partnership with somebody Versus just saying, oh, well, this is what we've done. You go do it. Right. Exactly. Because some people will take that and will do it. Mm-hmm. Um, some people will not do that unless they get the extra incentive just because either, you know, they're, I don't know, I don't know the word scared is, I don't scare is the right word, but um, I think it's just important that we have people that are regularly engaged. And I think mm-hmm. that's, you know, to me, I think that's the beauty of extension is you have that consistent engagement with folks. Right. Um, and I think that's what you know, my, one of my more favorite aspects of the job is going out and talking to people about it. more. It's more of ag climate issues. Yep. Uh, so it's not like the really nitty gritty hands on things, but I mean, I think it's all kind of related. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does seem to me that we've done a very good job in this part of the country in Nebraska in particular with adoption of no-till, which has been great for soil health. Yep. Um, so, I mean, I do think there's precedent for adoption of some of these activities. And, you know, I'm wondering if, Possibly is some hindrance um, is, um, you know, just that it, it takes time for some of these benefits to really show up. Yep, absolutely. It does. So, I mean, there's, there's a certain amount of patience that is required. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm wondering if, um, you know, for example, some of our farm programs that we have couldn't be structured in a way that, you know, allow people to take, you know, what somewhat more risk in the sense of doing something that is more sustainable and regenerative, you know, that would offset some of those costs or a loss, potential loss of income for years if, if they have that happen, mm-hmm. of course. Right. Um, and I think that's also into some of this integration where some of that benefit comes from is where that time that it takes isn't only on you because you're working with like a crop producers working with livestock producers. So it's not this the crop producer having to get his livestock and wait for all of that change to happen. They're being able to work together and kind of offset some of that time as well. Um, it still takes the same amount of time, but the stress is spread over multiple entities instead of just one. Mm-hmm. Did you personally get to get out and work with a lot of the producers? I have the opportunity here in the next couple of semesters where I am going to have more interaction with some of the producers. Most of my interaction recently has been me personally attending the extension workshops that are put on and getting to talk to the guys there, not because I'm leading anything, but because I'm attending for the information that's being given out as well. One of the perks of being a grad student is you still get to learn from everybody around here. So it's really exciting. That doesn't change once you become faculty. You still learn. It's <laughs> lifelong learning. Yep. 
And, you know, I think that's another thing about extension is I think um, you still kind of are involved in the research world to a point, uh, but it's much more about like, okay, how can we make this research very applicable? Mm -hmm. Like how, like where, where, where are some of the gaps? Right. And I think that's what's beautiful. That's the beauty of the land grant institution is I think you, it's a lot easier to, maybe not easier, but I think you can much more quickly identify gaps and start figuring out, okay, what, these are the gaps, like, what do we need to solve this gap? Yep. And, you know, you talked about data earlier and, you know, I'm wondering if, because there's so much data collected on farms now, mm-hmm. or the potential to be collected on farms. And, you know, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal, I think it was last summer or last fall that talked about how, you know, a lot of producers really, either they don't have time to sit down and actually really go through all their data, or they just don't quite understand what all that means. And, yep. you know, I, maybe that's just another area where we need to focus the next five years. Like, okay, how can we most optimally assist people with the data that they have? So mm-hmm. they know how, to, are they actually making really data-driven decisions? Right. Yep. And, you know, not, not everything can be literally just data-driven. Some things are just, sometimes instinct is, mm-hmm. is best. Um, you know, sort of like a, in baseball, it's like, yeah, data is important, but you, you know, sometimes you know that one pitcher is going to come in and in certain situations, he's going to be better than somebody that maybe statistically is better. Right. Um, but that being said, it's like you have to know what the data is saying in the first place. Exactly. And I'm, I'm thinking that might be a potential gap that we could mm-hmm. help fill. Uh, are you familiar at all with the TAPS program? A little bit. Yeah. And I, I think I, I learned about that before I took this job. Yeah, but I've gotten to know a little bit more about it in the last like six months or so. And I, I really think it's almost an ingenious uh, program because it allows people to do experimentation without really having to take any significant financial risk. Mm-hmm. And they can sort of see from season to season what's working, what's not. And, you know, I, I like that they give, you know, they have your your yield champion, you know, the coffee shop, like, oh, I got this and this for mm-hmm. yield and but I, they actually give more of an award for the person that I think was the most efficient and the most efficient with the, the water resources. Yep. Like this is all at North Platte, so you kind of need to irrigate around North Platte. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I think uh, from what Chuck Brewer was telling me that, uh, you know, usually the yield winner is not the person who applies the most water. In some cases, they, you know, they apply a third less water than some mm-hmm. of the producers. And it's like, I think that's, um, you know, just really like to me, those that, being able to see what your peers are doing, mm-hmm. I think is very important. And I was kind of curious, like what you think of like that peer network model in terms of, you know, like, oh, well, so-and-so did this. And like, so maybe I'll try that. Do you think mm-hmm. that's effective? I do absolutely think that's effective. That's um, actually going to be a whole chapter of my dissertation is about the social interactions that we have and how they help shape the decisions that we make, especially in using some of these integrative and diversified farming um decisions that we're making. And so I think that we see it time and time again, that just, and even in our day-to-day lives, like if somebody tells you, you should do it this way, are you necessarily going to want to do it just because they said so? Or do you want, you want to, you want to be proven that it works. You want to see it happen. You want to know that it's going to work for you and your situation. And so I think that it's not just farming that this applies to. It's everything where being able to talk to people that have done it, and get that information, but also go out and look at and see how it has worked for them is really, really important to 
help jumpstart some of the adoption of these practices. Sure. Something that you've known for 30, 40, 50 years is doing something and you're seeing us working as you drive by their field every day. Mm -hmm. I think it's a lot more likely that you're going to adopt that. Right. Um, and maybe this is getting a little bit too much of the weeds of your research, but um, maybe this is an appropriate question, but do you find that even like one person in a community can make a huge difference in terms of adoption? I think so. I mean, I don't, within my research and everything, we don't, I don't have any evidence for that, but I think based on people that I know, and again, in the ag industry and outside of the ag industry, it just takes one voice, right? To start getting people thinking about it. They may not adopt immediately, but somebody might say, this person tried this. I don't think that's going to work for me, but I'm going to try something just a little different. And then it like snowballs into this effect of people being able to try the things that work for them that all stemmed off of that original person saying, I'm going to do something different and I'm going to show people that it worked for me. Yeah. Very good. Um, so in this podcast, you know, we try to talk about the challenges that we're facing, you know, a lot, many different areas of life, including agriculture. Uh, but I also think it's important that we try to stay optimistic and mm -hmm. you'll know, see where uh, we have opportunities for growth. And I just kind of curious, like what makes you most hopeful going forward in terms of uh, sustainable and regenerative agriculture? I think that the steps that have been taken already that are um, jumping into these new and innovative ideas that are coming out is really exciting. Like there's all sorts of different products and different companies and different um, practice ideas that are coming out that people are excited to use and try. And we have a whole group of farmers that are very innovative and very much on the front lines of we're going to try anything to be sustainable, be regenerative. And they're the ones that other farmers are looking at. And so I think that there's a really good group here in Nebraska and across the United States that are focused on that regeneration and that sustainable agriculture that we've been talking about. And um, I'm really excited to see we're in the next five, 10, 15 years, even the next 50 years. Um, to see how that progresses and how much progress we make there. Excellent. Alyssa, well, it's been fantastic talking with you, and I appreciate you coming on today. Yep, and this was Alyssa me. Hall from the Department of Agronomy at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln.